0: Person, we've we've known, Karen for many years. Um, she's really really amazing, and uh, so we just want to pray for her, for the rough her children, children are a bit sick. Um, so let's let's pray, let's pray for her. Father, thank you for Cam. Good morning. Um, I have the privilege of speaking, um, uh, contributing to the series that we're doing on the Sermon of the Mount. So if you have a Bible um, on your phone or your tablet or somewhere, you don't, there are some at the back, and they're free, so if you don't have one at all, you can take it home with you. Don't scribble in it though, you're going to leave it with you. someone else might need on. We've been doing a series on the Sermon of the Man. As we've talked about it, we've said it's almost the most famous sermon that's probably ever been given, and this week I'm going to be speaking a bit more on it, and I'm going to be covering uh, murder, <laughs> adultery, and loving your enemies. <laughs> so it's going to be easy, easy. Um, there might even be some of you just even hearing that you're just sort of like, yeah, great, a bit of me time I haven't killed anyone recently I haven't slept with the wrong person this week and I love my enemies so it's all good, it's going to be a good Sunday for you maybe I'm guessing for most of us, though, if we look at the Sermon on the Mount in any, um, in any depth at all, there's, there's part comfort and there's part confusion with it. There's a lot going on. Some things are clear and some things are not so clear. So we're going to try and unravel some of that and ask ourselves, what does the Sermon on the Mount tell us about the kingdom of God? Already we know that this was the theme of Jesus' teaching, that God had always promised that there was a kingdom coming, that there was a future kingdom of Shalom, this fabulous Hebrew word that doesn't just mean peace, doesn't just mean the absence of war, but it means fullness of life. It means health. It means wholeness. It means well-being within ourselves, with our God, and with the people that we are around. And everything Jesus did was to announce that this kingdom was at hand. We love this phrase, the kingdom is at hand. If you put your hand out in front of you, that's how close the kingdom was. The kingdom was at hand. The kingdom was imminent. It was an event that was about to break through. And Jesus was saying, with my arrival, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is at hand. So what can we find out about the kingdom? Well, Jesus demonstrated the presence of the kingdom through the acts of power. The thing Steve was saying about how Jesus was very good at show and tell, in showing us what the kingdom looked like and telling us about the kingdom. And he showed us in practice what it looked like to be a person of the kingdom through the way that he lived. And as Jesus started this famous sermon, we were reminded when Uh, Steve started the series, what seems like months ago, um, that this message, this gospel, this good news, is first and foremost for the poor, it's for those who mourn, it's for the brokenhearted, it's for the hungry. And just as Jesus did, remember remember Luke 4, he stands up in the synagogue, it's the beginning of his ministry, he's passed uh, um, scripture and he unravels it and it happens to be Isaiah sixty-one. And Jesus stands there and says, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because he has called me, he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captors, and release from darkness for the prisoners. He has anointed me to proclaim that this is the year of the Lord's favour. This is Jesus' ministry, this is the message, this is what he's come to bring. And these are the people that he's come to bring this message to. And you imagine the same in the Sermon on the Mount. People are sat around him. And maybe, maybe you're thinking it even now. They're thinking, is that me? Does that include me? Is he talking about me? Because that doesn't sound like what the Pharisees have been teaching us about. This doesn't sound like the same message we've been getting from the the religious leaders. And perhaps to you, that doesn't sound like the same message that the church has always been good at bringing. The people surrounding Jesus weren't like us in lots of ways. They were people of the Lord. Their lives were governed very strictly by the first, first five books of the Bible, what they know as the Torah. The Ten Commandments and the other instructions that they were given by God. And these, things, these instructions covered all sorts of things, not just the Ten Commandments. Um, God gave them instructions on their health, on their relationships, on um, family, on issues of justice. Because he had made a covenant with them where he was saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And you will carry out these things and they will make your life go well. They will cause your communities to run well. And by doing these things in the midst of all the paganism and everything that was going on around them, people will identify you as a separate people, a people that have been set apart, my people. And that was the original intention for all these instructions that God had given. But all of that had got completely screwed up by the time that Jesus came along. We know that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had added so much to this so an instruction about not working on the Sabbath, on the importance of taking rest and recovery, had been twisted. So now, you, you know, you weren't, as the equivalent would be today, you wouldn't, weren't allowed to turn the lights on. An Orthodox Jew these days has to set a timer on a switch for the lights to go off and on at the right time because they weren't even allowed to um, do things like this. It was just those things are described as work. And so they've made it very difficult for the people. They were bound up in all these rules and all these instructions. And the religious leaders have turned what was meant to be a guide rope for people into a noose around their neck. So here sits Jesus in the midst of these people who are governed by the law. And with one hand he's liberating them. With one hand he's tearing down barriers. And with the other he's explaining to them, I'm not abolishing the law. I'm not saying that anything goes. These rules were meant for your good. But I am fulfilling them. Every one of them. The law and all its requirements are met in me. And Jesus was here to tell us that the law was easy in comparison with what he's asking of us. Let's turn to Matthew 5, verse 21. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, "Racker, idiot, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Don't murder, don't even get angry. Paul later writes to the Ephesians, Paul later writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4, in your anger do not sin. That's a bit more helpful for us than this uh, blanket statement that Jesus is giving us. Do not murder, do not even get angry. So what do we know about angry, Um, being angry? How many of you have seen the movie Inside Out? Seen that movie? The little red guy in that movie, Anger, is really my favourite character. Um, If you watch Parks and Recreation, it reminds me of Ron Swanson. Yes. Yes, come on. So what we know about anger, this character of Inside Out, it is unpredictable, it is explosive, and anger can be really destructive. But anger can also be a sign. It can be a signal to us that something is wrong. At least we think that something's wrong. Because at one end of the spectrum, you've got someone is in my way kind of anger, which is all about just my sense of entitlement. It's all about someone not doing what I want them to be doing in the way that I want them to be doing it. Road rage is probably the best example of that. Yeah, there's a few people shouting. Out. That's, that's not good, is it? We know that. it's not. Good. Although it might just be that you're angry about something else and that driver or your colleague just got in the way. Paul would say, in your anger, do not sin. But there's a deeper anger too. And if danger is a sign and a signal that something is wrong, then we need to pay attention to it. If someone has hurt you, if you've experienced loss or frustration in some way, that reaction, that anger, is real. But it's just a road sign. It's a signal to something else. It's not the destination. We don't want to stay angry. We don't want to walk in that anger. We don't want to live in that anger. It's just a signal to us that something is very wrong. Less than two years ago, my mother died. She was very sick for a long time, and it was a very horrible experience. Uh, one of the many emotions that I felt afterwards was anger, and just the wrongness of it all. Recently, a dear friend of mine died. Um, she was very much like my mother in both her life and in her death, and it stirred up a lot of anger in me again. Sickness took her, and um, she shouldn't have died any more than I think my mother should have died. I'm sure many of us would accumulate to that. And so there are things that we can feel angry about, Anger can motivate us to take action when things are wrong, motivate us to take action about injustice, the situation with the refugees in Calais this week, um, the situation in America with the US election, which we won't get into. Um, (laughs) These things, anger can act like like a fuel for us sometimes. It can act like a passion, and it can drive us towards God it can cause us to confront things, difficult situations, difficult issues, that if we felt nothing about that, we would never have the energy to pursue them. So anger can be useful, it can be the sign, it can be the signal, it can be an energy driving us to confront things that otherwise we'd rather ignore. But turned in on itself, it's like swallowing exhaust fumes. It will suffocate us, and potentially it will damage those around us. And we've seen that. Perhaps you've been on the receiving end of somebody else's anger. Whatever they were angry about had nothing to do with you. But it's like being punched in the face emotionally. In the kingdom, there's ultimately no room for anger. We won't need it. We just won't need anger anymore because there's no injustice in the kingdom. And there's no pain. And ultimately, Revelation tells us that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. So here is Jesus saying, You know it's said, do not murder. You think because you're not killing people that you're holy. But don't accept anger in the place of murder. It's not a lesser sin. It can be just as destructive for you. If you struggle with anger, if uh, unforgiveness um, is an issue for you, then Viv preached an awesome sermon on this a few weeks ago. So don't come to me after the service asking questions about that. (laughs) Talk to Viv or listen to her sermon because she's like the queen of... Unforgiveness. Hang <laughs> okay, I'm going to tweet that. Hashtag, Hashtag anger. anger. Um, there's, just, there's no place for it in the kingdom. And if, if you're somebody who does struggle with anger, then you need to know that you, you go to the Lord. Tell him, I can't not be angry. Tell him you're really good at this. Tell him, you know, this is my life skill. If I was preparing my CD, I would put anger at the top because I'm exceptionally good at it. Take it to him because he will turn around and say to you, that's okay. It's okay that you feel angry. It's okay that you struggle with this. Let me help you because I can deal with this anger. I can dispel this for you. I can liberate you from this. I can separate you from this. What else does Jesus say? Let's take a look. Adultery and lust. Bring it up. Verse 27, uh, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery with him or her in their heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. (coughs) Don't commit adultery don't even look at one another in that way. And don't be like it that Jesus says that verse, that sentence twice. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. There's such a battle raging over our bodies at the moment, especially in social media. You can pretty, fi- pretty much find any horrible, graphic, inappropriate image that you like. And it's not the sort of thing you want to see at breakfast. But, frankly, it's available at breakfast. I mean, you could be eating your cornflakes and looking at hideous things. And some people are putting stuff out there entirely willingly. That's the other bizarre thing about it. But it doesn't matter about whether people are being compelled to do this, forced to do this somehow, or whether people are doing this willingly. Lust is about this desire for somebody else's body, whether it's offered willingly or not, for our own gain. And mostly it's fantasy. It's, It's... It's an escape from a deeper longing. It's just a fast food fix for something deeper inside of us. And Jesus identifies what's at stake here. Twice, he says, this will lead you to hell. And this isn't fire and damnation preaching. He talks about hell in in the previous verses when he's talking about murder and anger. He's saying literally it will lead you to hell. You can be alive here and now. This is not about the flames at the end of your life. You will end up living hell if you allow anger, if you allow lust. overwhelm you and overcome you and and, uh, entrap you. Um, Jesus says here, I'd rather you cut out your eyes or cut off a wrist wrist, than end up in hell. And he's not obviously advocating self-harm. He's making an extreme illustration to drive home this point. And he's not afraid to bring this up. Here's Jesus, this holy man, surrounded by men and women and children. And he's not afraid to bring this up, to talk about sex, to talk about anger and lust and murder in front of people. He says this is a human condition. These are desires that I gave you. You should want a deeper connection with another human being. And he knows all about that. But whether we're married or single, we're not going to find all of that met here and now. Um, Just this week, uh, the director of sexology of the Paris Descartes University. It's called our new book. I great you'll probably follow him on Twitter. <laughs> um, and uh, in his new book, he writes a lot about sex, funnily enough. And he says, we have never been freer to define our own relationships and follow our own pleasure. We've never been freer to define our own relationships and follow our own pleasure. And I think all of us would say that's pretty true. That's pretty evident from our own lives and the lives of those around us. But despite that, he would say, we are far from satisfied. We're just not satisfying ourselves. I mean, you can go out probably tonight and do pretty much what you want with who you want, whatever you want, and it's not gonna satisfy you. That's crazy. Relationships are meant to be joyful. They're meant to be challenging. They're meant to be giving. They're not meant to be distant. They're not meant to be disengaged and disappointing. It's not about what you can get out of a relationship. But lust, of course, is all about that. And before any of us get too pompous and say, yeah, well, you know, sex isn't an issue for me. You know what? I think we can do just as lustful or obsessive over a new car or over a new pair of shoes or over a house. We can get obsessed by these things. We can get fixated on them. And I think it comes down so often to a sense of entitlement about us, whether it's a person or whether it's a property. We see what other people have and we want it for ourselves. And Jesus says there's no place in the kingdom for this. I have fullness of life for you, and that's not fullness of life. God may well have for us a great job and a lovely church and friends and family, all sorts of those things, but we're not entitled to them. And those things in themselves will not fulfill us. If there's no place in the kingdom for murder and anger, there's no place in the kingdom for adultery or for lust. And again, Jesus would say to you, if you struggle with this, if this is difficult for you, If you've made an idol out of this stuff, let me help you with this. Let me remove it. Let me root it out. Let me get rid of it for you because I can do that. Jesus goes on and he's uh, talking about if someone hits you on one cheek, then turn the other one. If someone takes something of yours, go out and buy them a second one. And I was thinking about this and thinking Jesus is picking off these things one by one. And I bet it's part word of knowledge Part of the Lord is speaking to him. Part of it, he's probably hearing what his disciples get up to at the weekend. And he's thinking, yeah, I need to address that. And part of it, because he knows this is just a human condition, and this sermon is going to be written down for all time. And uh, he's giving us this picture of a kingdom, this picture of, picture of freedom, this picture of truth, which just seems unbelievable to us. It seems incredible to us that this is the picture that he's painting. And we might be very different from his audience. We might be very different from the crowd in front of him. They were, um, we are unfamiliar with this culture governed by law. We're much more familiar with a culture that's lawless, with a culture that says anything goes, with a culture that says go and find it, go and, uh, go and make it happen for yourself. But rules or no rules, God has something for us that's far beyond anything that we can imagine. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 43. I'm going to skip divorce and oaths. If that's okay with everyone, because I've kind of got enough on my plate. (laughs) You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies. This is this Sermon on the Mount. We talk about it being instructions, uh, an illustration about the upside-down kingdom. And there seems like there's nothing more upside-down and back-to-front than this about loving your enemies. Um, It sounds like nonsense to us. A lot of this stuff sounds like nonsense to us. We won't even think that we have enemies, especially if we're sitting here as nice Christians this morning. You know, I I don't have enemies. I mean, why would I have enemies? But,
1: let's see who your enemies
0: might be. Okay? Someone floating across your vision right now. The target. Um, Often our enemies are just those people who are different from us. Um, Those are the people who make us feel uncomfortable. Um, so usually we just avoid them, that's why we don't have any enemies. We don't spend time with people we don't like. We can, we can schedule them out of our lives, we can take a different um, set of stairs, we can go through a different department. we can move to a different neighbourhood. So we don't come across people, we don't have any chance of loving our enemies, because, yeah, we don't have any, because we don't live with people who are different from us, who inconvenience us, who don't smell very nice, or who make us feel uncomfortable or awkward. Uh, We had a situation with some neighbours where for months, if not years, they disturbed our weekends with antisocial behaviour. Often we'd go to sleep quite peacefully, and we'd be woken by them coming home, playing loud music, and they would end up fighting or arguing. And it was really, really horrible For, for months. We were stressed and we were angry about it, and we were intimidated and even afraid sometimes. And we were really frustrated by our own helplessness. So these people quickly became our enemies. There were practical things that we could do, and that we did did do, but we also chose to pray for them. And not just for this darkness, this oppression, this anger that they seemed to be feeling to go, but for peace to come, and for good things to happen in their lives. We started interceding for them, and it stopped. this was a very broken family, and we don't know what the issues were going on in their life, but I think both because we acted on it, and because we prayed for them, we might never know what affected them more. But our hearts were changed in the process. Our hearts were moved towards them. There is no place in the kingdom for having enemies. We need to go out and find the people that make us feel uncomfortable, the people that we find awkward. It doesn't take, it really doesn't take a lot of effort. But find the people who, who make you feel that way and try and befriend them. And again, if you say, I can't do that, I'm useless at loving people, I only like my friends, And Jesus would say to you, let me help you with that. I can do that. So remember all of these words. This Sermon on the Mount, it's not just instructions. It's not just um, the Ten Commandments 2.0. It's not an upgrade. The Sermon on the Mount is like the why of why we have these commandments. Why do we have instructions? Why is it important to do the right thing? Jesus is reminding people that without them we're lost. Relationally and emotionally things are broken and you only have to look around out there if you're not willing to look in here and see that things are very broken. The reason Jesus gave us these things is because we matter to him. The way our lives fit together matter. Every one of us matters. How we behave towards each other matters. We aren't meant to be disjointed individuals floating about occasionally bumping into each other. We were made for relationship, we were made for family, we were made for community. And those relationships, when they're twisted by anger or by lust, they affect us. And just as we're made not to be disconnected or disjointed from each other, we're made not to be disjointed inside. Every part of us matters to him. And when there's lust or anger or whatever it is in our hearts, it can affect us deeply, even our health. (coughs) Jesus starts the sermon by identifying the least important the least useful and the least productive. The poor, the grieving, the hungry, the have-nots. But I hope that you quickly realize that he's talking to us too. That we are spiritually bankrupt. That we are habitually not good enough. That we're broken and that we're grieving. And that we're constantly hungry because we try and satisfy ourselves with the wrong things. And we cannot fix ourselves. I think that's one of the most important messages of the Sermon on the Mount, that we cannot fix ourselves. And in recognizing ourselves as needy too, it doesn't shove the poor aside. Yes, Jesus was talking about the poor. It raises them up, because I think it humbles us, and we we meet on the same level, and we say that this gospel is for all of us. All of us get to come in. Every one of us. The Beatitudes, it's not a list of um, achievements, we can't try to be poor. We wouldn't try to grieve. The Psalms talks about God being close to the brokenhearted. None of us is going to go out after church on Sunday morning and try and break our hearts so that we can be closer to God. But we find, I'm guessing you've found, that some of your most difficult times when you've reached out for the Lord, you've found that he's close to you because your heart is broken. And so Jesus paints this picture of the kingdom for us. He describes its welcome, its guest list. He describes the priorities and the characteristics, the freedom of those who live in the kingdom. It's full of every kind of goodness without any kind of self-righteousness. And it's arrived. This kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus. And we're invited in, every one of us. This is an invitation to us. It's not about more instructions. It's an invitation to come in. So what's our response to this invitation? What's our response to this description of a, of a kingdom that we, we find difficult to imagine? I think, unfortunately, we tend to fall into two camps. One of us, well, one group of us, perhaps, is the try-harders. That would be me. I put myself in that camp. We think, I can do this. We think, bring it on. Tell me how I have to jump, and I will do it. I can do this for you, Lord. I can be holy, as you are holy. Bring it on. But we can't. We're never never good enough, are we? We never get there. The standard is always too high. I think the other camp is for those who unfortunately have given up. Some of us have given up. We've gone, you know what, I've seen those holy people at church on Sunday. They're really good at this, and I'm not. I'm never going to be poor enough. I'm never going to be friendly enough. I'm never going to be gifted enough. So you know what, I'm just going to set up my own little standard over here. It's like holiness minus five. And that's going to be like the standard that I live by. And we live by so much less than God intended. So for the try-harders, the call to the kingdom, to perfection even, isn't about finding the right thing to do. It's about rescue. It's about reorientation. It's about letting him do the work in us from the inside out. I've I've had to learn that, I've had to experience that for myself and it's only been in my brokenness, it's only been in my most difficult times when I've known that I cannot do it no matter how high i jump, that the Lord has been able to come in and change me from the inside out. We need to stop worrying about how to save ourselves and realise that Jesus has already done it. For others of us we might say, we're setting our own standard, it'll be okay. Uh, The writer, C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia books and amazing other things, would say, It was seen that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. But if you do want this kingdom life, it's yours. That's it. It's it's yours. It's this thing about the kingdom. It's at hand. Many of us have made that decision, but we don't get off the hook that easily. It wasn't a one-time, once-in-a-lifetime deal. Our salvation might be, but if you want this kingdom life, it's a daily thing. It's an hourly thing sometimes. The only condition, there's a big condition to this, and it's a massive stumbling block for all of us. To be able to experience the kingdom, to be able to experience fullness of life, to be able to experience healing, to be able to experience freedom, to be able to experience empowering, is a big stumbling block for us. And it's surrender. We have to give up. We have to wave our white flag and say, I can't do this by myself. And not the giving up of, I'm going to settle for less, but the giving up of, I want more, but you have to do this in me, because I cannot do it myself. Jesus' teaching is so back to front, it is so upside down, and it offends our pride. It offends our thinking. But the only route is surrender. We either want to be let off the hook, or we want the five-step plan. I prefer the five-step plan. But it's not, we don't get to choose. It's that narrow way that he talks about. Just come, just come. Oswald Chambers, another exceptionally wise, ancient old guy, would say this. Isn't it humbling to be told that we must come to Jesus? Think of the things about which we will not come to Jesus. If you want to know how real you are, test yourself by these words, come to me. In every dimension in which you are not real, you will argue or evade the issue altogether, rather than come. You will go through sorrow, rather than come. And you will do anything, rather than come the last lap of the race, of seemingly unspeakable foolishness, and just say, just as I am, I come. As long as you have even the least bit of spiritual disrespect, it will always reveal itself in the fact that you are expecting God to tell you to do something very big, and yet all he is telling you to do is come. It's a choice every day for every one of us. We get invited in the invitation is extended to us and we get to respond to that and you don't have to be anything special you don't have to work yourself up into a frenzy in a minute we're going to have the band back and we're going to stand and we're going to respond to that invitation to the Lord we do something that we call ministry time here which is an invitation for you to come down the front and for someone to pray for you it's it's charismatic, that's what we do but it's not going to be crazy people waving their arms in the air or falling on the floor or throwing holy water over you Okay. We do this thing, we call it and natural, because we can't deny the presence of God. His presence here with us this morning, but we do it with yeah. normal voices, wearing normal clothes, in a very normal place. But the presence of God is here, and every Sunday the presence of God is here. And you might meet with the Lord on your own in your room and in your small group, and those times are unbelievably precious, we need those times. But every Sunday morning, this is a chance for you to come again and be rescued by the Lord and be reorientated by His Spirit. This is holy ground when we come into this place. and It's an opportunity for Him to meet with us. Yeah. So this week, you can come. You can be here on your knees, bawling your eyes out, or you can stand here with your arms crossed. We don't mind. It doesn't make any difference to us. Just respond to what the Lord is doing with you. And next week, you'll probably be the one up here praying for someone who's on their, on their knees crying. Because we don't just come when we're broken, and we don't just come when we're healed. Yeah. We're a big mess. We're a church full of misfits, and I hope that we stay that way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just come as we are, and that's Jesus' invitation to us. You want to come? Yeah. Well done, that was awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then you supposed to come. Mm-hmm. we stand? So Lord, we just invite your presence. Well, we know that you're already here, but we just ask for more.